that burned and sacked Jerusalem and burned the temple to the ground in 70 AD. Same name, different person. But he is a Roman. He's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. And yet he, he is found often in Scripture. Not only does Paul take time to write him this personal letter, but he's a, a converted Roman because of Paul's ministry to him. He's a Gentile, non-Jewish. He uh, met Paul early on in Paul's ministry when Paul left Antioch to discuss his gospel, as he says in 2 Timothy 2.8 with the Jerusalem church leaders. They had heard that Gentiles were getting saved all over the place. Everybody knew that Jews were, were already saved. They were the chosen frozen. They didn't feel that they needed to change a thing. But Gentiles coming to the kingdom of God, I am thankful they do because you and I are Gentiles. Most of us in this room are non-Jew. And yet the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The Christ that they rejected has become our pathway to eternity. He, when Paul left Antioch to discuss it, he took Titus with him. That's recorded for us in Galatians chapter 2. So Titus was early on in Paul's ministry, an important part. And, and their acceptance, these church leaders of Titus, as an uncircumcised Gentile, that they did not require to be circumcised, said that Paul's entire Gentile mission was vindicated. In that moment, all Peter and Paul and James and everybody else said, God is at work here. They accepted him without question, his gospel and ministry, his, his work vindicated once and for all. Titus isn't mentioned in the book of Acts, uh, but he is mentioned, believe it or not, a total of 13 times in the rest of the New Testament. Is a very popular behind-the-scenes kind of a, a person. He's not one for the spotlight. He's one that works behind the scenes doing the will and work of God. He'd worked with Paul at Ephesus during Paul's third missionary journey, and from there Paul had sent him to Corinth to try to corral the church there to assist uh, them in their newfound faith, and then to the island of Crete afterwards, which would be like taking a kid from Oklahoma City a redneck, and planting him in Harlem in New York City, hoping to minister to the minority community there. Uh, they have zero in common. It's kind of like when Chuck Smith was used by the Lord in the Jesus movement. Chuck Smith himself had, had often said, what does a middle-aged, old, fat man that's bald have in common with 20-something-year-old uh, surfers in Southern California, absolutely nothing. When his wife had the idea, let's go to the beach, honey, and pray for those hippies. Pastor Chuck said, no, no, I don't, I don't want to pray for those hippies. I don't want them in my church. I'm not sure they're, you know, fit for the kingdom of God. I know, I don't want to do it. And, and wives have a way of, of coercing their husbands ever so gently into doing what they know is right to do. So uh, Kay Smith would take her husband out there, and they pray for those kids. He didn't like hippies. He had nothing in common with them whatsoever. Until his daughter brought one home and said, I wanted to introduce you to daddy. And this long-haired hippie kid loved Jesus with all of his heart, shared his faith like he was Billy Graham number two. 
And Chuck stood in amazement of what God was doing in this young man who had absolutely nothing in common with him. And, and very soon, thousands and thousands and thousands of hippies were coming to faith, not because of Chuck Smith. They were coming because of the people that Chuck Smith had touched, these hippies that just loved Jesus and were spreading their faith. And it spread like a wildfire throughout California and, and ultimately all over the place. It was a massive move of God, born of the Holy Spirit of God by a person who had absolutely absolutely nothing in common with the audience he was preaching to. That's Titus in a nutshell. He's being sent to the island of Crete, something he was probably wondering, I, I, why? <laughs> this doesn't make any sense to me at all. I didn't go to school for this. I have no idea. Cretans have a unique reputation of their own, and I'm sure he was somewhat intimidated by Paul sending them there. Paul writes this letter to him. Somewhere about 63, 65 A.D., probably wrote from Corinth, Greece, because Greece, because he was on his way to uh, Nicopolis, Greece, we find out later in chapter 3. But Crete is a very large island. It's the uh, largest of Greece's 6,000 islands. Uh, it covers over 3,200 square miles, very roughly elongated, uh, 160 miles long. Got mounds as high as 8,000 feet tall. Uh, it was once the center of the proud Minoan civilization about 2,700 years before Christ, the earliest known civilization in all of Europe. But these people had gotten so far away from God. It is profitable for us to remember we have been a nation, America, for less than 250 years. God has been dealing with other civilizations around the world for thousands and thousands of years. This was called an American experiment, this thing called democracy, where a country was ruled by the people, not seen or well appreciated before. We tend to gravitate towards dictatorship. In fact, Rome itself did. The Republic of Rome became a dictatorship when the emperor took more and more and more power upon himself and suppressed his enemies. That is the natural course of political uh, circles since the dawn of time. Where there is a democracy, it doesn't tend to last long, but devolves as government seizes more and more control over the life of its citizens who have less and less to say about what the government is doing. We are somewhere on that continuum. I'm not sure where I am disturbed by trends in America, but, and I am praying for a revival again. Revival must begin in the church. It started here in Titus, and he was spreading his faith left and right. Paul shared his faith with this Roman, a very unlikely associate uh, relationship that they had. But Titus is sent down to this large island uh, because by the last three quarters of the first century, they had sunk to such deplorable, low moral levels. It was known for its corruption. It was known for its idolatry. It was known for its violence. It should concern you and I that the violence that we see across the American landscape today is written about in biblical times. We should see that the violence that's on the increase and the lawlessness and, and, and all that we see today that nobody really seems to have an answer to puts us right in the frame of what has historically gone on. Here's what 
Herodotus said so many thousands of years ago now, those not willing to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. So you should be prayerfully watching the trajectory that America has. And as we get further and further and further away from God, every vile and villainous thing that was ever found on the island of Crete will be found on American, shore, American shores and soil. Watch out. It's coming. You're seeing it evolve before your very eyes. People are doing things today that nobody would have thought about doing. 50 years ago, 100 years ago, the moral climate there was wretched. It was declining. Cretans lived only for personal pleasure. That trumped everything else on their agenda, pursuing the pleasure of the flesh. And the result was widespread gluttony, paganism, immorality, and alcoholism. That's what happens when a, a, a nation, a people, an island gets away from God. That's what happens. We should not accept it as God's norm. It is not. But if the church isn't going to be an influence in the world today, the world will overrun us. It will legislate us right out of existence. I mean, we may just be months, years away from the, the government taxing churches. Understand, the day that happens, a third of the churches in America close their doors. Somebody's got to pay this debt. I mean, it's over $30 trillion today. We seem absolutely preoccupied with the same things the Cretans were. And Paul's answer, I'm going to send them Titus because they need Jesus. That's America's problem. We don't have God as the centerpiece of national life anymore. We have strayed far from those roots in only the 240-plus years that we've been a nation. These other civilizations took thousands of years to get that far away from God. We've done it in a, in a quarter of the time. Today, what we see in American society is not normal. It is not God's plan for America. But until America as a nation bows the knee, we will continue our moral decline, just like the island of Crete. History is cyclical. It repeats itself. We walk that path, and if we do not change as a nation, we will go down as a nation like all of the previous empires before us. There were the Sumerians. They fell as they got away from God. There were the Akkadians. They fell as they got away from God. There were the Assyrians, and they fell as they got away from God. The Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. We're simply the next in line. But what makes us think we're going to be any different? Oh, no, that would never happen to us. We're too big. We're too great. We're becoming too pagan. The answer is Jesus Christ, whose responsibility is to spread the gospel, the church. The church. If you know that Jesus Christ is the answer, when's the last time you shared that with anybody? This nation will perish without our prayers. This nation will perish without us being the salt and light that we are called to be to this nation. That's why Titus had to go to Crete. They needed the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had once known the Lord eons past, had fallen far, far, far away from him. And their lifestyles in that nation indicated where their relationship with God was at. 
our nation today has little concern for God, but every concern about pleasure and fun and phones and technology and doing this and doing that. Alcoholism is rampant throughout our country. Drug use is epidemic. And we think the answer is sealing the border. While that may help, the answer is change human hearts. If, you draw, if, you, if every person in America, every man, woman, and child was a spirit-filled, born-again Christian, there'd be no market for the drugs. That's why this place needs Jesus. We can't put Band-Aid on, on problems that are tantamount to cancers. You have to excise those things. It starts with you and I being a holy influence in an unholy society. That's what Titus was when he was sent to Crete, a holy influence in an unholy society. Is it hard? Of course it is. Will you be rejected? Of course. They don't want to change. They need to change. And every once in a while, somebody will hit the bottom and come and ask you, I'm at the end of my rope. What do I do? Jesus. Jesus Christ is the answer. You can't make some obtuse reference to God because the world has many gods. They don't know which one you're talking about. You mentioned Jesus Christ. That puts a line in the sand. There's power in the name of Jesus, not power in the name of the false gods that are all around us. Nobody swears using Buddha's name as, an, as, as a phrase, a curse formula. Nobody uses Muhammad to do that. Why? There's no power in those names. Satan knows that. So people curse using the name of God and the name of Jesus Christ, his son. There's power. There's power in the name of Jesus. Paul writes then in verse 1, Paul, a servant. Hmm, not an apostle, not a big shot, not somebody who's got quite the story. Paul, I'm a servant, a simple slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Quite an ample introduction. A servant. Didn't Jesus teach his disciples the greatest in the kingdom of God must be the servant of all? What's that mean? It means be humble, be gentle, be kind. Define elect to the faith of God's elect. He is sending Titus to Crete because there's some down there that need to get saved, and some down there are going to get saved, and Paul calls him the elect. You hear that terminology, oh, the elect only refers to the Jews. That's, I'm sorry, that's not true. Elect here refers to unsaved Gentiles on the island of Crete that are going to accept Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus only died for the elect. That's baloney. Scripture tells us plainly, he died for the sins of the whole world. John 3.16. So I, I reject any referenced by any theology that says Jesus only died for the elect. That is a heresy that is alive and well today and pounded from the pulpits of churches right here in Colorado Springs. It is called Calvinism. If you haven't heard it, you will. You should reject it. On its face, it is ungodly. Here, the elect doesn't refer to us, the Gentiles, that have been saved. It doesn't refer to saved Jews only. It's a wide and inclusive term 
that God uses, sometimes to refer to the saved or the unsaved, those going to be saved, Jew or Gentile, even describes in, in one case, anyway, 1 Timothy 5.21, the elect angels. So be careful of this word election and how some of the cults use that term today. And he says that, and the knowledge of the truth. Didn't Jesus say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life? Jesus Christ. Jesus in his word. Knowledge of the truth. Look at this carefully. That leads to godliness. That was Crete's greatest need. It is America's greatest need this morning. We are not a godly nation. We have forsaken God. So godliness is not a part of our vocabulary. It's not taught in our schools. It's interesting to me that as we have increasingly got away from God, our schools teach something besides reading and writing and arithmetic. Remember the three R's? That's what we were taught as kids, even in pagan schools, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic. That's all there was to it. That was the purpose of school. It wasn't teaching critical race theory. It wasn't teaching us what a racist nation we're. It wasn't teaching trans issues and whether you're cis-trans. What does cis-trans even mean? I don't know. I've looked it up in a dictionary. I can't find it. They, They seem to be inventing new terms to substantiate why their sin is okay. All homosexuality is condemned in Scripture, New and Old Testament alike. I can't say that it's culturally acceptable, and because culture accepts that we should too, I'm sorry, it is a sin. One sin among many. Let me be clear on that. It's just one sin. Am I homophobic? Am I afraid? No. My heart is breaking for the fact that many of them don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior who would change their life. The the faith that you and I claim should lead to godliness, God-likeness. If there's no change, let me tell you what, you can't become a Christian and say, well, I'm going to do every sin out there that God's Word says is a sin and I'm not supposed to do. You better check your faith card. Christianity is practical. It changes lives. If you say that you know Christ, but there's been no life change, can I tell you something? You've deceived yourself. You're not saved. You're going to hell. You need Jesus. There has to be a life change. That's what he does. He's in the change business. The knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. You just want to highlight that in verse 1. Because our knowledge, our personal, intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ and His Word, along with the conviction and the empowering of His Holy Spirit, it changes us. It changed you. I could have testimony morning this morning and just have every hand up here. Tell us how you got saved. Tell us what Jesus is doing in your life. Tell, you, tell us what your priorities are. Tell us how, how the Lord has changed you. And we'd hear testimony after testimony. God changes He changes people. He delivers us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We're different. We've been washed clean. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And our actions, Mm, memorize this one, your actions speak louder than your words. The world can say, if I know God, do really? Do their actions back it up? Do their actions back it up? Interesting. God... Godliness is simply God-likeness. 
It's being like him. It's being holy. It's being separated from the things of this unsaved and natural world. It's being saved from, from the deeds of the flesh that demand instant gratification through sin. It says in verse 2, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope. I love that word. It's, let me tell you something about the Greek word hope. It doesn't mean like, I hope I win the lottery. You know, that's, no, hope in the Greek language is a firm and unshakable confidence in an outcome that is not yet seen but believed in with all of the heart. I know this is going to happen. There's a lot of things we know. Because I've accepted Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, I know His blood cleanses me from all sins. I know that I stand before God in the righteousness, not of myself, but of that of Christ Jesus. He has filled me with His Holy Spirit. I know that. He said it. I believe it. That settles it. That's kind of the bedrock of faith for every Christian that there is. There's more promises. Jesus is coming again. (laughs) I can't wait. Think about that. No more taxes. No more need to vote. <laughs> no more mowing the lawns, you know. What Tracy didn't tell you is what he's barbecuing in his backyard is raccoon. <laughs> there won't be any need of any of that stuff. We'll be eating at a banquet table prepared for us by the King of kings and Lord of lords. I can't wait. All because we have a knowledge of the truth. We have a knowledge of he who is the truth. I just want you to soak this in for just a second. As a Christian, your actions always speak louder than your words. You can tell people you're a Christian. They're looking to validate that by how you live. The things you do, especially when you're all by yourself. That's when sin really likes to reveal itself. That's when the temptations of the enemy will come at you the hardest. But we have a knowledge of Jesus and his word. It leads to godliness. Our knowledge of he and what he has done, it should change us. Our hope is eternal. It's anchored in God's ability to perform on his promises. Look how many he's already fulfilled. Promised to deliver his people out of Egypt. Yeah, he pulled it off. Promised to send his son. He did. He promised his people if they didn't repent of their sins, they were going to captivity. It happened. He promised after seven years they were coming back from captivity. It happened. Told Abraham, uh, you're going to have a son when you're 100 years old. <laughs> Everybody's thinking, yeah, right. Sarah at 90 was laughing about it. <laughs> 90 years old, having kids. Uh-huh. But it happened. Why, why could, how could we possibly doubt that the rest of God's yet unfulfilled promises will soon be fulfilled? Jesus is coming back. The horn's going to sound. We're going to be gone in a twinkling of an eye. Can't wait for that. And verse, look at verse 3. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. You see, God's not willing that any should perish. That's why Titus had to go to Crete. You think, why would God send anybody to an insignificant island? It's only the sixth largest island in the entire... Who cares, right? I mean, you may not have even heard of Crete before. But God cares about every man, woman, and child on that little island. He was concerned about their eternal destiny. God is not willing that anyone should perish, but that everyone come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9 tells us. 
and a verse that I can't get ever very far away from, nor do I want to. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. That's what Jesus wants to do. But because he's in heaven and you and I are on earth, he means to use us to get the message out. We are his method. He could send angels to do it. He chose you and I. I think the church over the last 2,000 years has not done a really great job of getting the gospel to the four corners of the earth. I think we could do better. Would you agree? Let's be praying for that. Let's be open to being a part of that. El Paso County needs Jesus. Are you willing to tell somebody that? Are you personally, you personally, are you willing to do something about the lost condition of Colorado Springs? Does, the question is, does anybody care anymore? That people are lost and dying and going to hell. People are addicted to drugs, homeless people living out there. And our plan now is to give every homeless person in Denver a check for $1,000. That's going to go straight into the drug dealer's pockets. Why on earth would we do that? What they need is Jesus. Let's give them some food and clothing and shelter, get them off the streets, give them some rehabilitation and make them productive members of society again. I mean, the answers are not really difficult. But does anybody really care? Do we care? Do we pray like we care? Are we doing something about it? Are we quick to open our mouths when given the opportunity? In verse 4, it continues to Titus, my true son in our common faith. Obviously, Paul had led Titus to faith in Christ Jesus. And Titus had the changed life to prove it. Grace and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Grace. Uh, charis. Charis. You, you've heard the term charismatic. If you are a gracious Christian, by definition, you are a charismatic Christian. It has nothing to do with speaking in tongues. It has to do with believing in the grace of God moving in on and through you. It's simple. You're a gracious person because you serve a gracious God. That's how it works. So you, by definition, you can tell people from now on, I may or may not speak in tongues, but I, I am full of grace. I am a charismatic Christian. Charismatic, that's where the word comes. And peace, Hebrew shalom, the most common Greek and Hebrew greetings because God is no respecter of persons. Everybody needs to know him, his love, surrender to the lordship of his son, the church there was both Jewish and Gentile, and Paul is sensitive to both and includes them in the Hebrew and Greek greetings. The reason I left you, verse 5, he continues, I, the reason I left you in Crete was not because I don't like you. <laughs> it's not because it, I, I just threw you to the wolves. Uh, it was so that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he lists uh, the qualifications of an elder a little bit more briefly than he did to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But he says, the reason I left you there in Crete is because something's broken. In fact, he uses that medical term there in straighten out. It means to mend a fracture. That it, there's something broken on the island of Crete. There's something broken in the United States of America. 
It needs to be fixed. I thank God for Franklin Graham, for the, the other great pastors and evangelists that are on TV telling people about Jesus. But quite frankly, there's only a few of those guys, and there's millions of us. So the responsibility of gospel evangelization falls on your shoulders and mine. So do you tell people about Christ? And if not, why? Are you ashamed of the way you live? Is that what's hindering you? I'm a compromised Christian. I'm in pornography. I'm a slave to gambling. I, whatever else. Is that what's stopping you? Maybe you better fall on your knees, confess your sins, repent of them, ask the Holy Spirit to baptize you afresh and move you in a Godward direction. Then you can share your faith without guilt, shame, or hypocrisy. It's all about Jesus. And the closer you are to Him, the more easily His name comes to your lips. The world needs Jesus. There was something broken in Crete, something broken in the world today. That medical term was applied to the setting of a fracture and displaced limb. There were some crooked things that had to be set straight among the congregations of Crete if they were to heal and, and mend and be properly used to their best function. And Paul says, I want you to appoint some elders over them point to permanently designate, ordain these elders. Elders in the Greek language is presbyteros. It's where we get the word Presbyterian. Literally in the Greek it means old guys. Old guys. That's all it means. You, it's, not an, it's not a church term in the original Greek. It just means old guys. But it is where we get our word Presbyterian. The, the word has a Hebrew background going all the way back to the 70 elders in the time of Moses, where Moses is personally seeing every man, woman, and child that walks in his tent looking for justice. And his father-in-law came to him one day, and Jethro said, Are you crazy? There are millions of them, and there are one of you. What you should do is anoint, appoint 70 elders to help you in deciding some of these, these issues amongst the people. And that's exactly what it did. And God said, you round them all up, these 70 guys, and I'm going to fill them with my Holy Spirit. Mm. But they were old guys. They were presbyteroi in, in the plural. But I want you to notice in verse 5, elders, and the, ver the word we see in verse 7, overseer, they're used interchangeably in these pastors. And both have the same requirements. The elders of the church the church board, if you will, any of the, the old guys in the church. And as well, there are teaching elders like myself. I, I love to teach God's Word. But there are non-teaching elders as well. In 1 Timothy 5.17, uh, Paul tells the, the church, respect the elders among you and most especially those that are teaching and preaching the Word of God. So there are teaching and non-teaching elders. So I don't expect every board member of mine to be able to take my pulpit at a drop of a hat and, and, and preaches. Some would rather eat a bad apple in the backyard than, than do that. They, they just don't have the gift of teaching or preaching, but they are elders. They are, are important in the function of the church. 1 Timothy 5.12 says, respect such men. Respect such men. I don't know if you know who the elders of this church are. Can I have the elders stand up for a second? All of, can I have the, uh, all of the board members? Uh, Dennis, I'm going to need you to stand up. Dwayne, you're an elder in the church. All of the board members want to stand up for a second? Dwayne, stand. 
move faster. Just because you're an old guy is not a good excuse. These are your elders. Adrian, you're not standing. Stand up. Tracy in the back. John Mark. Ed Romero, these, these are some of your leadership. These are your servants. But the Bible is clear. Respect these guys. Why? They've got to work for me. <laughs> they have a hard job. You guys can sit down. Uh, but they, they make the important decisions in the church. We get together and we pray for you guys. And, and we make very important decisions. And it's been the backbone of the way this church has worked. Just like the 70 elders of Moses' time. There was only one Moses, so you could see him as the senior pastor, if you will. But the people that God gathered around him gave input into him and it enabled him to make wise decisions. And I, I want to do the same thing. So I praise God in heaven for you men. Thank you very much for your service, for your life, your godliness, your dedication. It is so important. But then he outlines the qualifications uh, of, of an elder, especially important here on the island of Crete. Uh, qualifications, they had to be wise. They're old guys, so they have to possess some wisdom, some maturity. They have experience. Now, in verse 7, he talks about the overseer using it as a synonymous term. So, the qualifications for elder are listed, and the responsibility of that elder are listed next, watching over God's flock and exercising oversight of the church in general. Well, let's read that for ourselves. Verse 6, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient, since an overseer, huh, he just skipped gears here, but he's referring to the same person. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, one who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This sounds much like the list that Paul had given Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, qualifications of a pastoral candidate. Uh, but he relays now the same instructions to Titus, which tells me the same standards apply. Whether in Greece or in Rome or Jerusalem or the churches on the island of Crete, the same standards apply. It should be that way in every single church in the world today. Regardless of denominational affiliation, there should be a holiness to the people that are running our churches. There should be uh, them being set apart. They should be, as it says, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, hospitable, loving what's good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. These are characteristics that transcend place and denomination. These are the kind of people you want running your churches. Again, there seems to be less emphasis on, on that today. What qualifies a man for spiritual leadership over the church is simply godly character. Just godly character. You want somebody who has a heart for God. You're never going to find a perfect man. You're not looking for a perfect man. You're looking for a godly man, a spirit-filled man. Godly character established according to the clear criteria that, that Paul outlines right here. In verse 6, where it says that he must be blameless, he mentions that twice in this passage. Does, it doesn't imply sinless perfection. The, the word in the original 
means that there shouldn't be anything that they can accuse you of. That there's not some outstanding crime that the police are looking for you. They, there's nobody there to call you to account because you haven't done anything of that magnitude. Uh, they, they can't find fault in you. Your character is, is rather unimpeachable. You're a good guy. A perfect man, no. A good man, yes. A godly man, yes. Colossians 1.22 says this, but now he has reconciled you, God, by Christ's physical body through death and to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. He needs to be blameless. And he needs to be a person who has been watched over time. How long has he known the Lord? You don't want a new convert in, in the pulpit that says, I don't know, come here from Sikkim, I haven't studied, boo, I got saved last week, but I'm good to go. Uh, there's not enough wisdom there. There's, there's not enough testing there. There's not enough time in the saddle to make that work. He's to be also the husband of what one wife. Literal Greek, as he said in Timothy, is to be a one-woman man. Polygamy was forbidden by Roman law, so that's not what Paul is talking about, not multiple wives. A divorce was rampant, however, but Paul didn't specifically say that divorced men were excluded from the ministry. Paul knew the word divorce. He's the most educated and, and literate man in the entire Bible that I know of. He could have used the word divorce, so he's not saying that if you've had more than one wife, you're disqualified from ministry. That's not what he's saying. It's also not a command to be married, but to be faithful. Since elders were older men of the congregation, Paul assumes that most of them probably were married. Unmarried men were not disqualified. You'll remember that Paul himself was unmarried, so that doesn't disqualify you from a pulpit ministry. Most likely what Paul is saying is this, this guy that you're considering a, as an overseer, as an elder in the church, they need to be faithful men. They need to be monogamous in their married life, uh, a one-woman kind of man. If they're unmarried, they're not to be a, a playboy or a flirt. Godly a godly man must not flirt. It's a constant temptation because uh, the eye is the lens through which Satan gets his hooks deepest into men's hearts. So guys, watch where you put your eyes. Don't look impurely at anyone in the church or out of the church. That's what's required of all who would call themselves by the name of Jesus Christ. You are not free to engage the flesh. Don't do that. Don't do that. I, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but it is problematic for men. It is problematic for men especially. So when you go to Walmart and in the summertime, when women forget how they're supposed to dress, they either come in their pajamas or no clothes at all. Guys, there's only two places you can safely look, at your toes or the sky. Because everything in between will get you into trouble. How many of you know exactly what I'm talking about? Huh? Husbands? Listen to your wives. Wives, you now have pastoral permission 
blessing and responsibility. Dominus Wobiska, meet your biscuits. To call your husband's attention to it if he's looking at anything in between the toes and the skies while at Walmart in the summer. Okay? Little of this. Hey! Eyes to the tile, buddy. It's a difficult church age we live in because there is so much immorality out there. There is no modesty in society. That's why society can't dictate our morals. There are no morals in this sinful, fallen world that has wandered away from God. We were once a godly nation. We are in the minority these days. Understand that. There will be increasing persecution coming against the church. They don't like you now. Give it another 10 years, they're coming after you. Give it another 10 years, the churches are going to be taxed, and they're coming after you because you're considered, you know, if, you, if you're conservative in any way, shape, or form, according to the Bible, you're a domestic terrorist, man. You understand that? They're coming after you. That's the rhetoric that's out there today, and we wonder why the nation is so divided when the rhetoric is so heated. I don't need to be called names. A domestic terrorist? Not even my little pooch at home thinks I'm a domestic terrorist. My wife thinks I'm a pussycat. Dog thinks I'm a play toy. I'm a threat to absolutely no one on planet Earth. But it is interesting that those most guilty of violent crime will accuse us of crimes of violence when we stand for the love and grace and mercy and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're salt and light in this society. We are the least harmless, most, we are the least harmful people on the planet. We who serve Christ, we should live that out on a daily basis. Stand for love and grace and humility and modesty. Stand up for the name of Jesus Christ. Ask to be filled with the Spirit every single day. Walk as close to Him as you possibly can, and everything else will turn out just fine. Verse 8, rather the, the elder, the overseer, must be hospitable. In other words, you like people. You like hanging out with people. You like having people in your home. You like sharing meals. One who loves what is good, not the evil that is out there today. One who is self-controlled, that means I can say no to drugs and alcohol. I can say no to pornography. Self-control is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Read Galatians 5. If you have a weakness in that area, you just need more of the Holy Spirit, and He needs more of you. Ask, and it'll be given. Knock and the door will be opened. Seek and you'll find. Self-controlled, upright, morally upright, holy, disciplined. Disciplined, I can say no to sin. Did you know you can say no to sin when you're tempted? Have you ever tried that? Or do you just go, oh, I'm tempted. There I go. I fell again. Did you know that you can say no to sin? It is possible. By the power of God's Holy Spirit, we should do it more and more and more often than, than we certainly do. Hospitable, philoxenos, fond of guests, a, a lover of people, a person who loves what is good, self-control. They sadly lacking that virtue on the island of Crete. In fact, self-control is mentioned five times in two chapters in this little book. It was a real problem in Crete. It's a real problem in the church today. To be upright, that's a man concerned with justice and fairness and impartiality. Holy, that means set apart 
from this world. You have nothing in common with this world. Try, stop trying to find something in common with this world. Discipline means literally mighty in strength and to have dominion over something. I'm disciplined. Discipline and disciple, it comes from the same root word. If you're a, a disciple of Jesus Christ, he has called you to be a disciplined person. Disciplined in the reading of his word. Disciplined in prayer, disciplined in praise and worship, disciplined in how you conduct yourself in public, how you, your work ethic. It means to have self-mastery. It means to be self-controlled regarding the bodily appetites and, and desires, possessing the inner strength to control one's desires and actions. Disciple, disciplined, same root. Christ is the answer. He should adhere, verse 9 says, to sound doctrine. Why? Because it encourages others. Did you notice that? So that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. You should know what you believe and you should know why you believe it. Because be, you'll be asked, well, what do you believe? Well, I believe X, Y, and Z. Why? Why do you believe that? Do you have a biblical answer for that? Verse 10, for there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. This, these were Jewish legalists that said, hey, everybody's got to get circumcised. Well, you can imagine 50-year-old Greeks were not standing in line for that one. You mean I got to be circumcised before I can become a Christian? But these Jewish legalists were saying, yep, and you got to keep all of the law and all of the traditions of the elders. Well, the law only served to condemn us. Jesus died to save us from it while he kept the law that we never could. And yet the, the, those of this circumcision group were saying, no, no, you've got to be circumcised. How does that make you more godly? If I cut off a piece of your flesh, how does that make you more godly? Does it stop temptation? No. Does it make you more holy? No. Closer to Christ? No. In other words, there is no value in circumcision. It was something that was given to the nation of Israel by God to set them apart from their Canaanite neighbors. Circumcision is of no value in God's eyes regarding our salvation. Maybe be a good thing to do from a health standpoint or whatever. I'm not going to get into that. Qualifications, verses 6 through 9, are something that we all need to hold close to because the Bible says that you and I, are a royal priesthood. So the things that apply to the priests that are involved in God's work apply to all of us today because we are representatives of Christ. We are His ambassadors. We are His priests. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. That's you and me. You don't have to go to seminary or Bible college. You already got the calling. All you need is the empowering. You got the calling. All you need is the empowering. How do you get that? ask. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is all about. If you are a Christian this morning, you've already got the Holy Spirit. But have you noticed sometimes you need more? You need more power, more gifting. You need something really smart to say in a difficult situation. You need a little boldness here. You need more. You just need more. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is about. You'll remember that Jesus had told his disciples, he said, the Holy Spirit has been with you. The Greek preposition is para. He's been outside of you, but walking alongside of you. 
He's been parallel to you. That's where our word comes from. But Jesus said, while he has been with you at some point in time in the future, he's going to be in you. That's where the agent of change comes in. It's not self-effort. I don't try to be a better person. I try to be as spirit-filled as I can. He makes me a better person. That's his job, not mine. My job is to get close enough for it to take effect. Put myself in his presence. Ask and seek and knock and keep on, on doing that. Apart from him, I can do nothing. That's why you need to be in the Word of God daily, and some of you aren't. Some of you crossing your arms, glaring at me because you don't want to do it. Why? What do you got to lose but your old sin nature? What have you got to lose? You got something better? We need Christ, the baptism of His Holy Spirit. Jesus said He has been with you. He is going to be in you. Then what happened at Pentecost? It says there that Peter, who already had the Holy Spirit in him, Jesus, remember, breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit in John 19. No doubt they got the Holy Spirit then. So what happened at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit came upon them in power. Epi is the Greek preposition. It means to come on or upon. It's where we get the word epidermis, the stuff that hangs on the outside of your body. Epi, I need the Holy Spirit to come upon me in power. And he doesn't make me act weird. I don't bounce on trampolines, bark at the moon, or, or chase cars. I, I don't act weird when the Holy Spirit comes upon me. But I'm more equipped to fully function in that moment to do and say what he wants me to do and say. That's all the baptism of the Holy Spirit. is. Maybe you will speak in tongues. Maybe you will prophesy. Maybe not. Maybe he has other spiritual gifts for you. But what you want is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever had that? Have you ever asked for that? Because there's more to be had. There's more to be had. And it's all up to you. He's a gentleman. He won't force himself upon you. But if you need the power to destroy sin in your life, you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you need the boldness to be a better witness for Jesus Christ, you need the baptism of His Holy Spirit. It's not some weirdness that comes upon you that you only catch in Pentecostal circles where people bop you in the forehead and force you to fall over backwards, but handily somebody catches you and then puts a doily on you. That's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Doilies don't make you holy and being knocked over backwards doesn't either. So sometimes you just need in the quietness of your own bedroom all by yourself to ask the Holy Spirit to come upon you in power and baptize you afresh and see what He does. Let God be God. I've prayed for the gift of tongues my whole life, didn't get it. My wife said, I don't ever want the gift of tongues because it creates so much division in the church, and she got it. That's not right. But it's, a, it's up to God who gets the spiritual gift. Now, on the other hand, uh, I love teaching, and it scares her to death, the uh, th thought of public teaching and debate. <coughs> or just sharing God's Word just scares her to death. She, she'll either pass out or throw up. Neither one particularly glorifies God. Why? It's not her spiritual gift. So stop asking her to head up the women's ministry in this church. She doesn't have the gift of teaching. Knock it off. She's got her spiritual gift. She's moving in them powerfully as far as I know. But you and I have no right to expect anyone else to operate in a spiritual gift they don't have. There's no more frustrating work than that. I remember Kathy asked me one time when Pastor Chuck had asked me to, to preach. He says, well, aren't you nervous? I mean, it's a church of 35,000 people. I said, nervous? I, 
hadn't even thought of it. No, why would I, why would I be nervous? Well, most people would not feel comfortable speaking in front of 35,000 people, but I feel more comfortable in front of 35,000 people than I do 35. Why? I have the gift of teaching. It's not that I'm the best or the greatest. I'm just Jim Etheridge. But I'm a pastor teacher by the will of God, like Paul was called to be an apostle by the will of God. That was God's call upon his life. The one time I preached for, for a Chuck, uh, the senior associate pastor, a guy named Romaine, uh, came up to me and he says, well, I'm going to here to pray with you before you go out and, and preach your service. He says, a couple of things I want to remind you. Number one, you're preaching to 35,000 people live. And he just gave that, that dramatic pause for a while to scare me to death. And he says, but... That's not all. You, you're live over, over 100 radio stations up and down the eastern uh, seaboard and the western coast, and, and there's over a million people that will be listening to you live. So that's 1,035,000 people that you'll be speaking to live. Don't screw up. That was his pastoral advice to me. I, th I thought, yeah, you got the gift of encouragement. But when I went out there, you know, I, I remember just walking out to that pulpit, I, I'm home. I'm home. This is, this is who I am. It's not who I'm trying to be. It's who I am. It's what I love to do. It's not something I'm trying to do to make ends meet. I can do no other. This is what I must do. That's the way Paul felt. That's the way Titus felt. A man of God who seeks to be a an overseer or an elder in the church needs to have that same kind of mindset. I'm all in. I am all in. Whatever God wants to do with me, great or small, whether it's easy or hard, is irrelevant. What matters is I'm walking in the perfect will of God. He can mold and make your life into something unimaginable if you'll just give Him your life and all of your heart. Don't hold anything back. Don't keep any secret sins around. Be quick to repent. In fact, repent daily. I mean, I figured that's about how often you sin. So repent daily. I mean, I'll, I'll bet you sin a whole lot more than just one time a day. Let me, let me follow you around with a yellow legal pad for 24 hours and a pen in hand, and I'll just chart every sin that you commit. Now, you, we need to repent every single day. God, it, because it wipes the slate clean again. The dirt piles up and we, we, the Holy Spirit of God just washes that. His Holy Spirit eraser washes all of that away all over again as we humble ourselves before Him. Don't let your pride keep you from confessing. The Holy Spirit is inside of you to tell you to stay away from sin and compromise. In my quiet time, I'm reading in Exodus where uh, three times Pharaoh proposed compromise with Moses and the Israelites that God said, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't just the men go? That'd be fine. You guys can go. Three days later, come on back. And Moses said, no, God was real clear. It's us and our wives and our kids and all of our animals, and we're going out in the desert. Three days journey to worship God. And there, so he proposed to say, well, he came back later and said, well, I'll tell you what, your men and women can go, you know, but, but, but that's all, and then you got to come back. No, no, we need to take our children and our animals as well. And the third time he said, oh, I'll tell you what, you guys can go, but, but leave the animals behind. I mean, the donkeys and camels and all the jazz, that's worth a lot of money. So why don't you leave your animals here and you guys go out there? Now all of a sudden they don't have any animals to sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses, to his credit, said, no compromise. I will not compromise. 
It's all or nothing. It should be that way with you and I. You're a Christian. Act like it. That's all that Paul is saying in a nutshell. You are a child of God. Act like it. Be holy. Be separated from the things that are wrong. Do what's right. Don't justify our sin and compromise. It's oh, a little, little fudging here, a little fudging there. I know it's not quite right, but I'm going to do it anyway. Nah, we're to be blameless. Blameless, he said. Verse 10, for there are many rebellious people, mere talkers, deceivers, especially those of this Jewish circumcision group. They must be silenced. That's your job, Titus. Shut them up. Tell them this is not the Word of God because they're ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. They're charging the church's money to do that. You have no idea how many times I've been called, hey, Pastor Jim, we'd like to come and minister in your church. Okay, great. What do you do? What's your name? Got some references or something, you know? Yeah, we want to come on and put on a big concert, you know? All we need is a three-day stay at the Broadmoor Hotel, a limousine to pick us up at the airport, and $10,000 up front. I wouldn't let you in my church if you begged me on bended knee. There's a lot of people in ministry for money. It should not be so. There are a lot of churches that think the object is to build up the biggest bank account they can, so they inflate the costs of books and charge you $250 to go to a ladies' retreat or a men's retreat or a youth retreat. What's the purpose of the church? Make money? Really? I want to do everything free. And if it costs me something, then let's split the cost. But I can afford a couple of packs of hot dogs and buns. I don't see that as asking too much of me. So the church will pick that up. You don't have to pay to go to church here. Did you notice that? Some churches you feel like you have to. I, I don't want anyone to ever feel that way in this church. Verse 12, even as one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. One of their own poets said that. What a reputation. That's a quote from the 6th century B.C. Uh, Cretan poet Ep- Epimenides he was a native of Kenosis, Greek. But in, in Greek literature, to cretinize was to lie. What a reputation. Oh, you Christians, you're always this. You Christians, are, what kind of reputation do you want? I want one of holiness. I want, I want a, a reputation of love and grace and mercy and, and hospitality. But these that teach otherwise, verse 13, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, admonish them, convict them, convince them, tell them of their fault, reprove them sharply so that they will be sound in faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to commands of those who reject the truth. The Jews, by and large, rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They crucified Him. There's lots of Jewish and other religious teachers out there today that tell you there's many paths to God and it doesn't matter how you live. And both are as heretical as Satan himself. It matters very much what you believe. It matters even more how you practice what you believe. You say you're a Christian. Act like it. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. And to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In other words, it doesn't matter what you eat. I don't have to keep the Jewish dietary laws. They can't save me. Don't make me more godly if I keep them. 
In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted ultimately because they don't know Jesus Christ. Verse 16, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. Highlight that one. There's a lot of that going on today. Personal conduct, your personal conduct demonstrates the reality of your faith. And everybody is watching. Went to my grandson's karate uh, exam yesterday. And, and the, the instructor of the academy would haul the kids out there and say, okay, I need you to demonstrate all of your moves in this particular forum. And everybody is watching you. Yeah, and he said that over and over again to these poor kids that were just scared out of their mind anyway. But I'll tell you what, it made them sharpen their game. They were snapping their moves, and they were obedient, and they, they had it down pat, you know. Everybody's watching you. Can I say that? That doesn't apply to just karate. That applies to you. You say you're a Christian. Everybody is watching you. Do you pass muster? Are you holy? Your, pre your conduct right here, right now, today, are you where you're supposed to be with Jesus Christ, and does your life reflect that? If, there, if you were hauled into a court of law today and accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Or is it just stuff you say, but you live like a pagan? You do what the world does, and you hope that nobody will notice. God knows. God sees. Everybody's watching. There's a lot on the line. How we live is everything. You've heard it said before, actions speak louder than words. That's especially true in, for Christians. Your actions will always speak louder. You can tell people you're a Christian un, until the moon turns blue, but your actions will always speak louder, and they will confront you when your actions don't live up to your confession of faith. Well, I thought you were a Christian. And then it's time to repent and say, I'm sorry, Lord, I've compromised. If there's any compromise in the way you're conducting yourself today, repent of that sin. Take to the Lord. Be, be washed, cleansed of that. You don't have to continue in compromise. This has very personal application. You thought, well, the, pa the pastor's the guy who's on the hot seat here today. <laughs> We're all on the hot seat here today. We all have an obligation before the Lord. The truest test of one's faith is seen in his or her actions. It's not what you say you believe. It's you act upon what you really believe. Many people profess to know lives, but profess to know God, but their lives deny him. Christianity, above all else, must be practical. It's got to change you. If you're living in sin and think it's okay, it's not okay. You've compromised with the world that says, oh, sex outside of marriage or sleeping around, that's okay. The world does it. Everybody does it. Or I can live in sin. You know, no, you can't. You're a child of God, and the world will, conv will convict you of hypocrisy. If you're married, act like it. If you're single, act like it. But don't blur the lines. It's black and white, obedience fully, completely, and only to the Word of God, where we have no right to call ourselves Christians. It's got to be practical. Christianity must change your life. Put your faith into practice. How? I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> Read, pray, worship, fellowship, communion, 
when we have it once a month with the Lord. Remember Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 and verses following? These 3,000 new converts devoted themselves to four simple things. The apostles' teaching, that's the Bible, the Word of God. They devoted themselves to prayer, to fellowship, and to communion. It's not, it, this isn't anything secret. You know this. You may not do this, but this is how you get strong. Read, pray, worship, fellowship, communion. It says they devoted themselves to, to those things. That's how to succeed at karate. It's how to succeed as a Christian. Practice makes perfect. Practice, practice, practice. What do I practice, Pastor Jim? My karate moves? No, practice reading, practice praying, practice fellowshipping, <laughs> practice communion with the Lord. These are the things that will keep us strong. That's how to succeed as a Christian. Practice, practice, practice. Say practice. practice. That's all I, that's my only expectation of you today. Huh? There will be a test. Verse 1 reminds us Christianity is practical. It changes people's lives. Our knowledge of Him leads to godliness and holiness on a personal level. Secondly, avoid legalism and dogmatism in all of its forms, whether it comes through Judaizers or Calvinists or Messianic Jewish pressure to keep all of the Jewish holidays or Sabbath-only observers. You're going to hell unless you worship on Saturday. Avoid all of that kind of legalistic nonsense. Those whom Christ has set free are free indeed. Okay, thank, thank you, Jesus. Not free to sin, free to serve, and free to do it in, in the freedom that we have in Christ. He's thirdly, can your personal conduct, verse 16, just says it all to me. It says, your personal conduct says more about the reality of your Christian faith than anything that comes out of your mouth. Okay? Your personal conduct says more about the reality of your Christian faith than anything that comes out of your mouth. Words are cheap. You've heard that idiom before, haven't you? Words are cheap. James said, show me your faith. Show me your faith by your deeds. <laughs> yeah. That's what God wants to see. That's Titus chapter 1 in a nutshell. And then going in chapter 2 talk about what you should teach to, to various groups, the older women, the younger women, the young men, uh, and to devote themselves to doing what's good. Titus is to me an encouraging book because it reminds me that Christianity is practical. This is where the rubber hits the road. This is how I act because this is who I am. I don't do it to become a Christian. I do it because I am a, a Christian. Does that just make sense? Let's stand close in prayer, shall we? You're a good, good father, to be sure. In this precious relationship whereby we have been washed of our sins and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, I know we have obligations, responsibilities, not to the world, not to the flesh, but to you. My prayer is holiness and purity. My prayer is that some of us have come this morning... Uh, with a guilty conscience. And they're going to need to decide, I can't compromise. I can't do this. Anybody who's struggling in here with the sins of the flesh or the world or compromise, we lift that up to you here and now and confess it as sin.
and ask that you would wash and cleanse and purify us of all unrighteousness and that you would uh, again fill us holy spirit that we might be holy, set apart from the things of the world, set apart for you, Lord Jesus, for your purposes. We don't want to soil our testimony. We don't want to compromise who we are. I'm a child of God. You've called me to act like a day in and day out. It's where the rubber hits the road. Help us to not be silent these last days. The world needs to know that there is one way. There is the way, the truth, and the life, and his name is Jesus. So give us the boldness of lions to share our faith when you give us that opportunity. And may our conduct always speak louder than our words as we give you glory and honor and praise, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.